So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pass out a separate paper with the scripture passage because I embedded it in the outline. And I think we'll actually read it first, even though it comes at the end. I'm gonna change the order a little bit. So I hope you guys can follow that. So turn the, the page over to the back and you'll find the scripture from 1 John, the Apostle John, his letter, 1 John chapter four. If you wanna look at a Bible on your phone, you can look at 1 John chapter four, but it's also on your actual outline, right? Um, I was thinking about, you know, it's hard to know, like what passage do you speak on when you're gonna talk about dating? In one level, everything the Bible has to say um, relates to dating, actually, because everything the Bible has to say is about relationships, right? Of all kinds. There's not like special rules for dating in the Bible. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see, dating isn't even necessarily biblical, but that doesn't mean it's not biblical. It's just not in the Bible, right? So how then are we supposed to live? And the Bible has a lot to say about that, about the way we live in relationship with other people, what kind of character we should be seeking to develop as God's grace impacts us. And when I think about that, I think about this passage in 1 John chapter 4, because I think of this as really a paradigm-shifting passage, particularly verse 16, where it says that we know and rely on the love God has for us. Notice the words there. They're, they're important. It does not say that we know and rely on our love for God. It doesn't say that. I think a lot of people, that's basically how they're trying to live. I remember when I first became a Christian around ninth grade, I remember literally thinking, and maybe this is the way just people think, um, I really need to get a Bible study about every three or four days so I can kind of stay fired up for Jesus all the time. So I know I'm going to go to church on Sunday now that I was going to church anyway, but I wasn't a Christian. But I, I was like, okay, I've got a Bible study. I've got Young Life on this night. I've got this. I need to find a Bible study around Tuesday, you know, kind of in between this and that so that I can kind of, I can only really like kind of keep going for a couple days without needing another like shot of God. So I, but do you understand like the problem with that? I was seeking to rely on my love for God. Not only that, I didn't know anything about God. Like 1 John 4, 16, so it says, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. It's important to know it if you would rely on it. But it's so different than the way so many of us are trying to live. And it has everything to do, has everything to do with living out of fear or living out of faith. Knowing and relying on the love God has for us. And I think one of the biggest impediments to dating and one of the things that makes it so messy and so hard is that fear drives us so much of the time. Fear that drives us towards wanting to control, wanting to kind of get things all figured out. We'll talk about that, but I thought it would be good to start with this passage in 1 John chapter 4. This is love, not that we love God. Our love for God, John's saying, is so pathetic, it can't even be called love. Like in the Greek, this is, this is love, ook, which is the, we not, right? Not that we love God. 
Like, no, that doesn't even enter into, like, you go to the dictionary, God's dictionary, what is love, and your love for God isn't even in there, right? This is a, a theme all through the Bible. God actually says to his people through uh, the prophet Hosea, way back in the Old Testament, your love for me is like the morning mist. As soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. That's important, right? Because if you're seeking, I always use that passage when I do weddings, actually. Because, I know, it seems like a weird thing, isn't it? But it's important, I'm telling you, you don't want to marry somebody who thinks they have the power and the capacity to love you for the rest of their life. You don't want to marry somebody like that. You want to marry somebody that understands what 1 John 4 is saying, we don't create love, we reflect it. We're more like the moon than the sun when it comes to light, right? So this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He loves not just in words, right? Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That's always the biblical pattern. God's love drives the way we live. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like, in this world, we are like Jesus. Is that right? Yeah. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Notice it doesn't say we love God because he first loved us. All love is because God first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. He calls us to know and rely on the love God has for us. It's a great uh, old hymn called Rock of Ages. You ever sung that one? Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. You know that, you know that hymn, maybe? Um, do you know the original title of that hymn? Some of you know this because you've heard me tell this story before. You took my hymnology class, which I'm going to teach again in the spring, uh, a year from now, by the way. Um, the original title for that that hymn, Augustus Top Lady. So, you know, with a name like Augustus Top Lady, you can give, you know, good names to your hymns. It was originally called A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. A Living and a Dying Prayer for the Holiest Believer on Earth. In other words, this is what you need to live, this is what you need to die. And I think the verse that connects so much to this 1 John 4 16, relying on the love God has for us is that verse, you probably, many of you probably know, 
Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling, right? But how about this one? Could my zeal? No respite? No. That means even if I could be fired up for Jesus without any rest, that's what respite means. Could my zeal? No respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? Even if I really could weep over my sin and my flaws the way they deserve, the next line, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. He actually wrote that hymn as kind of an in-your-face to a guy named John Wesley. John Wesley was a good man, but he did have this idea that you could get to the point where you didn't consciously sin anymore. That you could be so caught up in love for God that you wouldn't consciously sin anymore. Now, Wesley never claimed it for himself, but he did claim that he knew some people that he felt had achieved that level. And top of he said, what? Are you crazy? <laughs> the prayer you need to live and to die is even if I could be fired up for Jesus all the time, even if I could weep over my sin the way it deserves, all for sin could not atone, thou must save and thou alone. And you know what's fascinating? It didn't take very long at all for this hymn that was written as kind of an in-your-face to John Wesley ended up in the Methodist hymn book. John Wesley is the founder of Methodism. Maybe some of you guys grew up in the Methodist, you know, uh, denomination. It, because all Christians recognize, yeah, Wesley, you weren't quite right about that. And um, most real Christians actually resonate with the idea that we never get so good at this loving others thing that we don't still need God's grace, right? So we need to know and rely on the love God has for us. And that's hard to do. We're going to talk about dating. We're going to talk about kind of the context in which we try to work that out, live that out, right? So go back to the, to the top of the, the front of the other page. The dilemma of dating. Now, about 10 years ago, a guy named Arthur Levine released a study that said that traditional dating as a campus pastime was largely dead. He said this, it's been replaced by groups of men and women who travel in unpartnered packs, avoiding the risk and commitment they would face if coupled together, but often still enjoying friends with benefits. Now, I'm not going to try and argue whether or not that's happening here still in the same way. I think there's been some significant changes, but I think the next thing he says is interesting. He says, again and again, students told us they have never seen a successful adult romantic relationship. We're people full of fear, committed to control our lives in such a way that we can reduce all risk of being hurt to an absolute minimum. But perfect love, we just read, casts out fear. So how then shall we live? How do we live today? See, the problem with dating, another significant problem, is the relational shift of postmodernism. And I don't know if you know this, but this is true. In a traditional culture, maybe the culture of your grandparents, or for some of you, maybe your parents, the most important relationship in a traditional culture is your family. And you don't go against your family, okay? It's the one that gives you meaning and confidence to face the world. The most significant relationship is your family. It's how you know who you are. In the modern world, this is like the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, it really was your lover. There was a, a famous movie called Kramer versus Kramer. I think Mel, Mel Streep was the 
the title character. It's an awful movie. But what makes it even more awful is the people that made the movie thought it was a triumphant movie. Because Meryl Streep's character decides to leave her husband and her little boy, and there's this scene where she basically says to her little boy, mommy's going away because while I've enjoyed being your mommy, there are other things that I would like to do. Family doesn't matter as much as the opportunity to find new love. That's the modern world. The postmodern world, the postmodern world, the most significant relationship is your friends. And, and it's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to risk a friendship for the hope of love or maybe even family one day. Because family and lovers let you down, but friends are friends forever, right? Except not really, because they let you down too, right? And, and I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've, if you've been so good at finding friends, you know, some friends, some people are so afraid that they kind of do this auditioning kind of process. They make themselves real hard to love to see if you can really qualify to be the kind of person they can trust, right? It's hard, it's hard, but perfect love casts out fear. The rules have changed, right? Trying to figure out what dating is. Now here's the, the trouble, like we used to have traditions that were somewhat oppressive and not necessarily even logical. Um, I, I remember, you know, some of the ladies watched Pride and Prejudice, the five-hour really good version. Yeah, right. Anyway, but you know, Jane Austen, Jane Austen is coming against oppressive structures and rules about how relationships are supposed to work, particularly finding someone that you would marry. And she rightly critiques it, right? Here in our day, there's all kinds of, you know, I guess things that we've kind of rejected as being oppressive, and yet I'm not sure that the situation we live in now where there don't seem to really be any rules is much better. Now, what's fascinating, I don't know, you guys know this, this guy, Aziz, um, the comedian guy, right? And he wrote a book called Modern Romance. Now, what makes it even more complicated is wrote that book 2015, two years later he had his own Me Too scandal, and then there's a whole debate about whether the woman that wrote this anonymous article, whether that was fair, and it's a mess right now, right? But here's what's interesting, he's like looking at the modern dating scene in that book, it's a pretty profound book actually, and, and he's, he's basically like, look, we've got all this modern technology, we've got algorithms, we've got apps, we've got all this stuff, but I'm not sure it's helping. I'm not sure it's helping. He says this, uh, where have I have it? I have a quote from here. Um, oh yeah, the expectations have changed, he says. I thought the big changes, he's writing in this book in 2015, I thought the big changes in romance were obvious as he enters into writing this book, he says. Technological developments like smartphones, online dating, and social media sites. As I dug deeper, however, I realized that the transformation of our romantic lives cannot be explained by technology alone. Today, people spend years of their lives on a quest to find the perfect person, a soulmate. The tools we use on this search are different, but what has really changed is our desires 
and even more strikingly, the underlying goals of the search itself. And here's what he points out. In the 1930s, over one-third of Americans married someone who lived within five blocks of them. One-third of the people married somebody who lived within five blocks of them. Today, through technology, dating sites, etc., we have more possibilities and computer codes that help us find a match, yet it seems harder and harder to find the one. Maybe, this is what he says, maybe the expectations are a problem the technology can't solve. And how does the technology encourage the consumeristic view of relationships that plagues our culture? See, he's in an interesting spot. He's a thoroughly modern, postmodern person, but he also, his parents were married through an arranged marriage. And so he's kind of being like, who's to say which is better? Like the idea that, like I have a good friend, you know, from seminary who got married in arranged marriage. He's from India. And I remember, like, even the idea that that could work out was like, what? And then you have to think, but who's to say? biblically. There's a lot of people in the Bible that got arranged through arranged marriages, right? But we can't even be, think of that. Like, it seems like crazy. Why? Because we approach relationships like consumers. And consumers should be able to pick what they're going to choose to buy, right? So it's hard to come into this stuff and think about this kind of stuff. So there's the, the idea that the rules have changed. And so now, even in the last week, <laughs> I found two different articles. Kind of where are we at? Okay, today. He wrote that book, 2015. So um, this is a, an article that came out on the 17th. So that was yesterday, right? Yeah. Yesterday in The Guardian. This is an English paper, right? So when I read this quote, you got to um, recognize that. But The Guardian has this uh, article, all tendered out, question mark. We're trying to break down the stigma, says Sarah Payne, the events manager at Speed Dater Events. There used to be a big stigma about online dating, but now that's gone. It's completely normal to meet online, and we'd like to see the same thing happen with events. We do speed dating, but we also run parties, cooking classes, and wine tasting. As people develop, hey, app-based dating fatigue. Did you know that was a thing? That's a thing. As people develop app-based dating fatigue, singles events are making a comeback. Apps are very appearance-based, and events give people the chance to get a better idea of who a person is. People might be unsure about attending them, but then they find they enjoy the face-to-face -face interaction. So, of course, <laughs> this next... Only English people would say this next little section the way this is going to be. They're so, like, understated and everything. You'll see. Some dating companies are putting a spin on singles mixers with events such as naked speed dating <laughs> or pheromone dating, where people can try to sniff their way to true love. <laughs> For Alice, a 20-year-old, 28 Alice, 28-year-old copywriter from Reading, these gimmicks can be fun, but they aren't likely to lead to love. Oh, really? <laughs> Here, here's her quote. I went speed, uh, sorry, I went naked speed dating because I thought it would be something different. Women's tickets for dating events usually sell out faster than the men's tickets, but the opposite was true for this. Imagine that, yeah. But listen, but listen to this. In the past, dating apps 
Event companies and websites have come under fire for commoditizing the search for love. Advertised by pearly-toothed sex gods, they charge a heavy premium to find a, quote, soulmate. And although many websites and event organizers cite great success rates in uniting couples, ultimately, this is important to remember, they are businesses, not magic love machines. If everyone found their fairy tale ending on the first attempt, the profits would decline. Now, that isn't to say that those aren't necessarily helpful, but you definitely need to kind of consider the consumeristic thing that's built into them, right? So again, to say this stuff is complicated. So that might make sense of this article from January 20th in the New York Times, I Quit Dating Entirely. So this lady, uh, Mesa Dixon, 35, swore off, and here's interesting, like the subtitle is Mesa Dixon, 35, swore off sex seven years ago. I think what's interesting and kind of sad to me about this article is the equating of dating with sex. But listen to what she says. I started having sex at 16, didn't have my first orgasm during sex till I was about 25. In 2013, I decided to stop dating and having sex with other people entirely. I've never really had a boyfriend or a long-term relationship. She's 35 now. It's always been a sexual thing. I had two long-term friends with benefits, one for seven years, another for 10. After my last relationship ended, I was like, why am I doing this? I was good enough to have sex with, but not good enough to be taken on dates and introduced to friends. That's po worth pondering. It just made me feel so bad about myself, like I was a dirty secret. I thought, I'm over this. I don't want to deal with men anymore. I'm not a big dater. So I just got over dating. The urge went away. So I quit dating entirely. Now in the article, she goes on and talks about how you can still be sexually fulfilled without dating. And again, it's just so sad. We'll talk about sex another one of these weeks. But to think about dating, it's kind of a mess. It's no wonder <laughs> that people are afraid, right? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Well, as I said, is dating even biblical? Well, it's not. People in the Bible didn't date. They didn't. But here's the thing. Does that mean that dating is forbidden? And to that I'd say, absolutely not. Because here's the thing. We must never call something sin that the Bible doesn't call sin. Even if you can think of all kinds of good reasons why you would think it's not a good thing to do. All right, make your case, but don't make laws where God has not made laws. The Bible has a lot to say about that. You know, I, I, I ask this question from time to time, but I, I rarely meet students who've heard a sermon entirely devoted to the topic of Christian freedom. Christian freedom. And yet, for instance, Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Right? In Colossians, he says it's for freedom you've been set free. Do not submit yourself to these rules that humans have made. Do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. All these things, he says, it seem like they have the appearance of wisdom because they teach a harsh treatment of the body. 
And one thing that religious people tend to do is think that if you downplay anything that seems like sensual or physical or pleasurable, that you're more holy. The Bible actually comes against that way of thinking about life. Do you know I have more Puritan books about Christian freedom than there are books that you can go buy right now on Christian freedom? You think of the Puritans as being like these uptight kind of people, you probably need to learn more about the Puritans. But they talk about Christian freedom all the time. Martin Luther said he only thought there were two books that he wrote that are worth reading after he died. And one of them is his book called The Liberty of the Christian Man. That's all about Christian freedom, about not making laws where the Bible doesn't make laws. So even if the Bible doesn't address dating particularly, it doesn't mean that it's forbidden because it's not in the Bible. Okay, so that's, that's important. Um, the second is, I, I, I thought I should at least address this. For a while, and I, I don't know how popular it is anymore, but maybe some of you all were grown up, grown up with this, with what we call courtship. Uh, I remember there's a, a book that this guy called me up and he wanted me to bring our, the, all the students to this event he was doing out at Opryland years ago. Um, and, and it was basically, the book was called Choosing God's Best. Remember, I think I mentioned this when I was talking about knowing God's will because I asked him, how do you know what God's best is? And he said, well, you pray about it, and God gives you peace in your heart. And I told him, well, I kind of feel like living by faith feels like death. And there was just like silence on the other end of the phone. <laughs> uh, you know. But I, I, remember, um, this, I remember getting the book. I was like, all right, you can send me the book. I'll look at it. And um, it was unbelievable. It was about 50 pages on all the damage and danger that dating could be, could do. It was like all these things, that it all was about dating. You know, like unwanted pregnancy and venereal disease, like on oh, and I was like, really? I think, I think sin has something to do with that. I don't think it's, <laughs> it's dating. And then, but here's what was even more amazing, is like he, the first scripture that he dealt with in this book was about Ruth and Boaz. Do you know the story of Ruth and Boaz, where Ruth's mother-in-law encourages her to lay at the feet of Boaz, which is a very sexually suggestive thing to do. And I'm like, this is your passage for the Bible teaching courtship, because the mother-in-law told Ruth to do that. And courtship was basically, you don't date, you let your parents decide. Now I think involving your parents isn't a bad idea, actually. But what, as I read that book, I was like, this thing is driven by fear just as much as what Lawrence Levine is saying, the reason college students out in the world don't date. The Bible should teach us a different way to live that's not driven by fear. So, courtship isn't biblical. Dating isn't biblical. You have freedom, right? That's the first thing. The only categories in the Bible are married, engaged, and brother and sisters in the Lord. That's the biblical categories. This kind of in-between thing we call dating isn't necessarily in there. So, how then are we to think about it? Well, I think the place to start is what is the purpose of dating? And you know, here's, here's what can be helpful. It's like I could ask, what's the purpose of art? Well, it's actually not as hard as you might think because the purpose of art is what is the purpose of mankind. And the purpose of mankind, the book of Ecclesiastes says at the very end, now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. There are some Puritans that put together a document called the Westminster Confession of Faith 
in the 1640s. They have a version of that in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? What is the purpose of mankind? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's basically just a, a twist on Ecclesiastes, the end of Ecclesiastes. That's the purpose of mankind. That's why you're here, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's the purpose of art, right? And there are a lot of ways to glorify God. Some art speaks truth to power, but does it in an ugly way. Some truth speaks about beauty that is, some about beauty that might come one day. Some, some art communicates, some art entertains, and all of those are under, all of those are valid sub-purposes under this overarching purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God has created a whole world full of God-glorifying potential, and that's the purpose of dating too, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, you know why that's important? Because if you substitute a valid sub-purpose to be the overarching purpose, it really messes things up, and let me tell you how. If you think the purpose of dating is to get married, then what do you have to say about every dating relationship that doesn't end up in marriage? That it was a failure. Why would you want to say that? I mean, every dating relationship, no matter how good, is going to be marked by sin and brokenness. And every dating relationship, no matter how bad, probably has something that you tasted of what God made you for. Now, that's debatable depending on how broken it is, right? I'm not going to argue about that. But the, but the point is, the purpose of dating is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's to be blessed, to be a blessing is another way to think about it. That's what God tells Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the nations. That's what Christians are about. The purpose of dating is not just to get married. And again, the promise, problem with that then is that it makes every relationship, you have to label it a failure unless it leads to marriage. I would rather you think in terms of, was I a blessing or was I blessed? It really helps. You know why? Because too many people get caught up in this catch-22. I don't know, I want to date them unless I would marry them. Yet I don't really know them well enough to know if I would want to marry them. So I'm not going to date them because I don't know if I would marry them. Do you see? Right? And part of the problem is thinking that the purpose of dating is to figure out if you want to marry them. I don't think that's an illegitimate purpose, but I think it's too much pressure right off the bat. But again, you could disagree with me. I, I have some pious advice. That's the best way to, to put this. That's kind of an old-fashioned church history term, but I think it fits well here. Pious, I hope it's pious advice about dating. Um, try to live in line with reality. Don't base your life on something God has not promised. Dreams are important for shaping who we are, but we have to be careful that they don't turn into demands that we place on God. I remember a, a friend of mine, we had went to, well, we weren't in college together. We were at neighboring colleges, and we were, we were close in all through college, all through seminary, and uh, I didn't get married, you know, until I was 33. So I think we were probably both in our early 30s, and we were talking on the phone. He was single, I was single, and at one point, he just kind of was so frustrated. He was like, is it just, is it too much 
to ask of God that I could just get a date. And I was like, well, it's not too much to ask, but I don't think you're asking. I think you're demanding, right? Now, again, I, I don't want to fall into this kind of silly tit-for-tat theology that I read about, uh, you know, in all these kind of silly little Christian articles that, like, until you're completely content with not dating, God will never give you, you know, a boyfriend or girlfriend. No, the only thing that qualifies you for blessings of any sort from God is what Jesus did on the cross, okay? Not how well you handle it or how thankful you are, whatever, okay? But still, demandingness towards God is something that he loves you too much to just let you live in that place, right? And, and even my own story, I, I feel like in some ways that was a big thing that God had to work with me on, just like this demandingness that God would give me friends and even using him as a means to an end and being mad at him for years that he wasn't coming through the way I thought I deserved. It would, I mean, in some ways, nobody should have been like dating me while I had that kind of anger towards God, right? Because the, all I was gonna do is try to suck the life out of other people, which had a lot to do with probably why I wasn't getting any dates. <laughs> See how it works? There's something about the fear, the perfect love casting out fear that really does change you, or it should, right? So be careful about building up specific expectations of what you're looking for. God might have something different in mind. That's one of the challenges, of course, with dating. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. Most of us, we walk into a room, we immediately eliminate 90% of the people just based on what they look like, and then we hope that of those other 10%, one of them could be a true soul friend. It's probably the wrong way to go about it. And, and the, the online dating, again, that's one of the challenges, right? Is, is trying to find compatibility that's not just based on superficial sorts of things. I listened to a TED talk today on how I hacked online dating. It was kind of fascinating just to think about, like, if you know the algorithms, it helps you understand, like, what kinds of things it's going to push you toward. Uh, another principle that I think is helpful, Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. How does that maybe apply to dating? It's in Matthew 5, 37, by the way. Well, what Jesus is saying is this. Don't swear oaths to encourage people to trust you, but rather live in such a way that your integrity will be seen by all. So let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't say with your actions or with your body things that you wouldn't say with your words. And there's lots of ways that we violate that. There's lots of ways that we do things that are basically saying, I belong to you or you belong to me when you aren't really making that commitment with your words. And it's worth thinking about, right? Jesus doesn't want us playing loose and fast with commitment. There are people, I think, who like to act like they're dating or married without being courageous enough to name it honestly. And that's not good. That's not the way Jesus wants relationships in the body of Christ. That doesn't mean that you need to instantly have a DTR, right, talk. Do you know that? Define the relationship, right? You don't need to have that talk as soon as you, like, have one conversation with somebody, right? As a matter of fact, I think one of the best ways to fall out of love is endless DTR talks. 
where you begin to focus on the relationship as this abstraction rather than the other person, right? And I think the same thing happens with God. I, I think a lot of people are always looking at their relationship with God rather than looking at God himself in his beauty. They're like trying to maintain a relationship like it's a plant that needs to be watered rather than falling more deeply in love with Jesus because they're looking at his beauty on a regular basis, right? And I think that works that way with your friendships, your relationships, your family, all those sorts of things, right? If you're always like worried about like where do we stand, that can, that can be detrimental. And it can be a way of just trying to exercise control rather than living out of faith. But yes be yes, no be no. Honor others, be honest towards them. Biblically, you don't have ownership over someone else's body until you're married. And I, you know, I can, I can, we'll have another talk about sex, but my wife thinks I'm a little too prudish on this, I suppose, but I'm just going to tell you, I really believe biblically that the level of physical affection should be commiserate with the commitment level of the relationship. Because God created sexual intimacy not as a way to say you're hot or I really like you, but I'm yours and you're mine. I don't think there's any doubt about that biblically, that physical affection should be commiserate with commitment level. And commitment level that's named and understood by both people. Think, it's worth pondering. It's worth thinking about. And I certainly have verses um, that, that spell some things out in particular. Um, like, oh, well, there's that one in the Psalms about delighting in the breasts of your wife and no one else's, right? So the Bible does say some specific things about that. You know, sometimes people are like, well, what is the will of God for me? Well, the Apostle Paul says, flee sexual immorality, for this is God's will for your life. So it's a good test on whether or not we really actually want to know God's will. Um, honor other people. Act towards others in a way that their future spouse will one day be thankful that they were in a relationship with you. I know that sets the bar high. I think you'd have a hard time arguing that that's not where the bar needs to be. Again, I don't, I don't want you to turn this into rules. I want these to be the kinds of principles you think about, you know? Like, I know that breakups are really hard. I really do. But I'm always really encouraged when people get through that and it doesn't like just destroy every relationship around them, and it's hard. I know it's hard, um, but, but I think it's something to strive for, and I think the way you live in the relationship has a lot to do with how it will end and what will be the, the fallout. I do. Um, like I said, I think the main obstacle to dating in the world and the church is fear and perfectionism, and again, let me just, let me just read this this, some of this passage. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 16, so we know and rely on the love God has for us. So do you see what he's saying in verse 10 there? This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Here's what, here's what God is saying. His sacrificial love is the defining reality that drives all other relationships. And he's called us to know and rely on that 
love rather than our own love. And I think whatever you're about, that's always the goal, that you would come to know and rely on the love God has for you. That could happen through amazing, wonderful, life-giving relationships. It also happens through heartache, right? This is bigger than whether or not you're dating somebody. Because if you're in a relationship with God, it doesn't end. You don't break up, right? I always tell people when I do a wedding that you either say those vows out of naivete or out of faith. And the only way you say, the only way you can pledge to love another sinner for the rest of your life not knowing what will come is if you know the one who holds the future and you know that he lived and died in your place and he can be trusted. And he makes vows to each and every one of us to never leave us or forsake us. He makes vows to love us in sickness and in health, the richer or for poorer. And his vows are not broken by death because his vows were sealed and ratified by death. Therefore, death can't undo them, right? He died as the perfect sacrificial atoning sacrifice for our sins. And that's got to change the way we live. One of the old Puritans said this funny thing I think is relevant here. I'll close with this. He was uh, talking about his neighbor and he says, I think very little of another man's Christianity whose dog is not better for it. In other words, you can take the measure of how well this person understands the love of God by how well he treats his pets. <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting. Like, what do you, what, how do you measure that? I think, right? How do you live in relationship? How do you live in relationship? Do you honor one another. Why wouldn't you honor one another? Probably because of fear and control. And what's the answer to that? Do you're going to walk out here and feel like, oh man, I really need to do better. No, I hope you'll walk out of here and say, I need to taste more, to know more, and to rely more on the love God has for me. You know, when I was your age, I was like, I couldn't rely on the love for God very much because I didn't really know much about what it was. And I'm not saying that just because you know more like about theology and about the Bible that you automatically rely on God's love more, but it's hard to rely on something that you don't really know very much about. And for me, like my senior year in college, I was like, you know, I don't know, I've been a Christian since ninth grade and I barely understand anything about the love of God except some little platitudes that could fit on a bumper sticker. It's hard to know and rely on the love God has for us if you don't know much about it. That's why we're always gonna be hoping to, to help us grow in that together and hopefully connecting the dots to how we live. Let's pray together.